I would see her calling, she would text me, and I just I couldn't I didn't feel able to respond. I was too frightened um, to answer and to go into it. I don't know why. Um, I was maybe testing her, maybe just to see if she would give up on me, but she didn't. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and on today's show is Laura. She called me via Skype, would you believe, from Falkirk, Scotland. Laura told me the story of her childhood knowledge that she might have siblings out in the world and her quest to meet them. When she met her biological mother, things started out slowly as Laura tested the woman to make sure she wasn't going to leave again. And she didn't. Then she did. Laura's developed a great connection with her paternal sister, even though Laura never got to meet her biological father. This is Laura's journey. If you heard last week's show with Barry, you're probably wondering what's up with all of these guests from Scotland all of a sudden. I promise you, it was purely coincidence that Laura's story followed his. Laura made time to speak with me after running two races that morning, a 5K and a 10K. So as we settled into her recovery time, I asked Laura to take me back to the beginning of her journey, which started in Alloa, Clackmanshire. And yes, I really wanted to say Clackmanshire. Well, I feel like I approach my own story with caution mm-hmm. because so much of it is only known from the social work records that I have and from the stories that my adoptive parents told me. Um, from what I know, my parents, who I was born to, were in a relationship for around nine months. And that came to an abrupt end upon the discovery of my mum being pregnant with me. And I think she only discovered that pregnancy at around five months in, so quite late. Wow. Um, my parents worked in the hotel trade. My mum was a trainee, trainee chef and my dad was a waiter. And when I was born, my mother was aged 20 and my dad was 33. So she was quite young. Mm-hmm. And my dad, my dad was fairly young, but he was in the middle of a, a second divorce. Um so I think maybe my mum had been an affair or maybe a rebound I following see. the breakdown of his marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, so I often wonder where I was conceived and by what by what accident of failed contraception or drunken forgetfulness I came to be. <laughs> uh, but the, the decision to have me placed into care seemed to centre around uh, the lack of support that my mum had from my father and from her family. Um maybe a lack of confidence on her part and perhaps a lack of money because where she was working, she used to live in the hotels and when I was born, she was living in homeless accommodation. So Laura's birth mother was living in a homeless shelter that September while she was in the hospital for eight days before moving to foster care. She stayed there for three months until she met her adoptive parents who took her home in December of that year. Laura was rattling off the facts of her Chapter 1 backstory when she said this. It feels so impersonal to talk about my own story because it doesn't feel like it's about me. (laughs) The fact that I was born with a different name, it makes it feel like that baby is someone else. I know. Um, It feels like recounting the story of a stranger. Mm. But for as long as I can remember, I knew that I was adopted. And 
It felt like my family existed as ghosts floating around in my mind. They weren't physically there, but they f- it felt like they were ever present. And Are you referring to your birth family? Yeah, yeah. It felt like it felt like my birth family were ghosts. I knew I knew that they were there, but for whatever reason, I wasn't sure why. I didn't ask, but I couldn't have them. Um, so it was a bit strange. Laura's adoptive parents mentioned to her one day that there was a possibility that she had biological siblings. The announcement made her really curious about what parts of herself were out there. I asked Laura about when she remembered having that ghostly feeling. I think one day my adoptive mum and I were having an argument. I was only maybe about seven or eight and I think I was misbehaving. And I must have really upset my adoptive mum. And she said to me in anger, um, you know, you can go back to your birth mum. We can send you back. And my reply was, when? And at that stage, she got really, really angry. And I think it was from then, it seemed to validate that my family were real and that they were out there. I wondered a lot about what they looked like. I became a lot more conscious of the fact that I didn't look like anyone. And I think that's when that's when it became more prominent, I think. Laura describes herself as having fair, light blonde hair in a family of brown-haired parents. It wasn't a stark difference enough to prevent her from passing as their child with others, but it was striking to her that she had no similarities with them. No one's mouth, eyes, nose, or jawline. She said the differences weren't significant to her, just noticeable but it became pronounced when she noticed the joy her parents and other people took in comparing themselves to their own parents. Of course, family similarities and dissimilarities are not limited to physical traits. Did you notice any differences in your own personality traits and and likes and dislikes? I think so. My adoptive parents were very hands-on, practical people. They liked gardening, uh, they liked sewing, they liked DIY. And I was never into these things at all. I was into reading books and writing stories and um, drawing and things like that. And where they were very outgoing and party animals, I was very quiet and introverted, I think. So I don't know. I don't know if I was the child that they expected um, or the child that they ideally would have wanted. Maybe it would have been different if I'd been born to them. Maybe that some of that would have come to me through the through the genes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. It's a it's a wonder that uh people feel like the child that they get is going to somehow be molded into the person that they want. Yeah. And and, and I think it's only become realized by a lot of parents these days that you know this blank slate idea is not at all valid because <laughs> the child yeah. does in fact come with a lot of heredity. You know that was yeah. that was passed on to them. I was curious to know whether Laura knew any other adoptees growing up. Sometimes that can reduce the otherness that an adoptee feels and prevents them from feeling like some kind of pariah. She knew one other kid at school whose brothers and sisters were also adopted. The adoption narrative they received was positive, like the children had been saved or given a better life. So Laura bought into that mentality. She was very pleased to be with her family even though she was confused about why she couldn't know her birth family. When I asked about the catalyst for Laura's search, she said she'd always had some social worker sourced information about her birth family, but it wasn't until she was 17 years old, in 2007, 
that she was legally allowed to view her original birth certificate. She left the social work department with a copy of her OBC, which documented the name Laura was given when she was born. Ashley. From the moment she received that document, it was pretty much a given that she was going to search. Laura and her adoptive mother went to visit a social worker who gave her the information she told us in the beginning, the relationship between her parents, etc. The social worker initiated a search for her birth mother, and before long, they were facilitating a letter exchange because they'd found her. Her name is Isabel. The social worker shared that she had moved out of Scotland, gotten married, and had more children. That news didn't sit well with Laura. After me, she had gotten married, and she had two boys. And I remember when I found out the age of my brothers. So at the time, I was 17, mm -hmm. and I think I learned that one brother was five, and the other one was 14. Oh. And when I found that out, I felt really angry. Why were you angry? I felt angry that she'd, I felt she'd moved on too quickly and had another boy, and I felt jealous and angry that he got to stay. But I didn't express that anger at all. I, I think I, I hope that I kept that under wraps because I thought if the social worker sees I'm angry, or if it gets back to Isabel that I'm angry, it might sabotage things. In her intro letter to Isabel, Laura tried to play things nonchalant and portrayed a positive adoption experience. She painted a happy picture for this woman to come into and tried not to convey that she had missed this woman whom she didn't actually know. Her birth mother's response letter went something like this. The sort of tone of it was that our life had been quite difficult and she'd had to make some hard choices. She explained that she got married, had the two boys, and then the marriage broke down and she moved with the two boys to Northern Ireland. She didn't go into too much detail, but she said the marriage had been difficult. Um, she said that she hoped, she was glad to hear that my life had been good. And she said that she would be coming over to Scotland quite soon with the boys so that they could see their dad and that she hoped to meet me then. So it all seemed quite positive for me. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah. At least for starters. Yeah. So were you were you in any way comforted by just the fact that she wanted to be in touch, that you were corresponding, that you had connected with this person? Definitely. I had been, I think, coached and counseled for the possibility of her not wanting contact. And I think, I think I thought I was ready to deal with that. But I think if that had been the case, I think it would have affected me hugely in ways that I could never have contemplated. Fortunately, that wasn't the case. Um, but looking back now, I think our relationship could have used a lot more support than we got as we moved into reunion together. Their social worker arranged a meeting at a local restaurant for the mother and daughter to meet. Isabel caught a taxi. Laura drove herself as she had just gotten her license. Their social worker met them outside in the parking lot. And I just I remember her getting out of the taxi and coming up to me. And I remember that she didn't look like the person that I thought she was going to look like in my head. I think, I think I'd always had a 20-year-old girl in my head. Um, she stayed like that in my mind. She didn't age in my mind. Her face... I think in my, in my mind I had my mother who looked like someone softer. When the social work helped me and got my records for me, they found some photographs of my mum and I together in the hospital when I was born. So I would have seen them when I was 17. Um, yeah, I saw those before I met her. And she obviously looked younger. Um, 
And when I met her, she was 37. So not old, but, you know, she looked different to mm-hmm. how I thought. And I think that was a bit of a shock. Um, I didn't know what to do with her. I thought, do I cuddle her? Do I shake her hand? What do I do? I'm not really sure if I remember what I'd done. I just remember looking at her and wondering, how how do I feel about this person? Is there something I should feel? Is there a rope that should be between our two hearts pulling us together? I wasn't sure. I don't think we touched. I think we said hello, and I think we moved quite quickly into the restaurant together with the social worker. Really? That's really interesting. You don't recall yeah. shaking hands, hugging, anything? You just sort of walked parallel into the restaurant? I think so. I think so. I remember my first physical contact with her after that, but I don't think we I don't think we had a, a hug or anything. That's really interesting. So how did the social worker join you in the restaurant for the meal, like sit there with you guys through the whole thing? Yeah, she ate with us, and then after we'd finished eating, she left, and we were left alone for a while. And I don't, I don't remember precisely what we talked about, but we must have talked about something sad because I remember at that point our hands, our arms were on the table and I reached over and held her hand. And I remember that. And I remember worrying about what people around us might think and what our relationship was, if people might misconstrue it and not know that she was my mother. I remember that I didn't want to let go of her hand I didn't get any impression of her pulling away or of it being uncomfortable, but I remember as she was talking about sad things, just wanting to keep holding her hand. Mm. And I remember how her hand looked the same as my, as my hand. I, I didn't immediately see my face in her face, but I definitely seen bodily similarities. The social worker took a picture of the women at that reunion lunch. Laura said seeing herself side by side with her birth mother, their resemblance was more noticeable. Same face shape, similar hair color, They were even wearing similar tops in the same style of their outfits. Like she said, Laura's social worker left them alone for a while. They visited for a little over an hour. When it was time to go, Laura offered Isabel a ride home to her sister's house, where she was staying while visiting Scotland. We were chatting away quite easily, but I was quite worried about what would happen when we got to her sister's, who's my auntie. Um, It felt kind of like a date. It felt like she was the woman and I was the guy who was desperate to get inside and get upstairs, (laughs) Uh, not for sex or anything, obviously, but to meet my family. I thought, am I going to get invited in and meet these people? So I wasn't sure and I didn't want to pressure her. So I think we sat in the car and talked a wee bit more and then she said she was going to go inside and that was fine. And I just went home. So... It would have been good if we talked about boundaries and how we felt and how things might have happened and what timelines might have worked for us, but we didn't. We just sort of tried to guess and feel our way through it together. Mm -hmm. How do you mean uh, talked about boundaries and and what what do you wish that you had said? I, I wish that I'd been able to say, I'm really keen to meet my family right now. And I wish that perhaps she'd been able to say how she felt about it. Maybe, yeah, that would be fine or no, not yet, and if we'd verbalised that. But I think maybe both of us were too afraid and we didn't know each other enough to know how to interact with each other comfortably yet. After a few trips to visit one another, Laura finally got invited inside. But the pair never discussed how things would go, so it was a little weird. Again, it would have been good if we'd talked about things because I went in and 
she, my birth mum introduced me as a family friend. So my brothers don't know that I'm their sister. And I'd never done reunion before, so I thought, well, maybe this is normal. Maybe this is the best way to do it. Seems fine. Let's just go with what she wants. And it, it was fine. She eventually, eventually introduced me as their sister. And I think the day that that happened, that was the day that they begun to remember who I was. Before that, I'd met them a few times, but because I wasn't of any significance to them, they don't really seem to have any memory of that. I knew I was looking at my brother's. But for them, I was just a visitor in the house. So you had been in there before, and she, yeah. I see, and she introduced you as a family friend, just as a sort of cool introduction, and she saved yeah. the much warmer introduction for a, a subsequent visit. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So she changed your identity in front of them, basically. She introduced you as a family friend, and then she turned around finally, after it sounds like a couple of visits, and finally admitted that you guys were siblings. Yeah, yeah, that was it, yeah. That must have been weird for you. It was quite weird, because there was things that I couldn't talk about in front of them. My auntie and uncle, they knew who I was, but I couldn't give away anything that would... That would um, hint that I was related to them or that I was their daughter or that we had any sort of shared history in case the boys twigged. I, I wonder what that was about. I wonder, we never, I've never talked about it. I wonder if maybe she was afraid that I would maybe meet them once and, and leave and leave the boys with a lot of unanswered questions maybe. Oh yeah, that's a possibility that she was yeah. protecting them. Yeah, hmm. yeah. And you know, the other thing that I can't help thinking is you said it yourself that you use the words I've never been through re reunion before and yeah. I would imagine that it's probably the same for her she doesn't know how to do this right yeah that's it that's it and after the first meeting there was no social work involvement and I think if there had been it might have been a good touch point for both of us for guidance and for support on how we feel and how to manage our feelings with each other but we were sort of just left on our own so we just done the best we could it would have set a good precedent of asking difficult questions and even if we weren't able to answer or didn't feel ready to discuss it, just to be able to say that and to say to set boundaries and say this is the extent to which I can love you and be in a relationship with you and this is how much space I need to be on my own and to do my own stuff. Laura and I talked about how it can be labor-intensive for social workers to be really involved in facilitating a reunion. From doing the research to find a person, to being present for the face-to-face -face meeting, and supporting parties in the aftermath. It's a lot. But that full process of support would be helpful for a lot of people. She admitted that she wished they had bridged the gap of outlining for one another what kinds of questions were within bounds to ask and what was uncomfortable territory, and just generally setting a safe space to admit vulnerability. In time... Laura and Isabel would stay on the phone for long conversations, and even though she was exhausted, Laura never felt comfortable admitting she needed to go. So she let Isabel talk as much as she liked until she detected Laura was worn down. Unfortunately, that pattern became draining. And so it led to quite a sad period where she would call me and I started not to answer the calls. And I think that lasted for quite a few months. I would see her calling, she would text me, and I just I couldn't, I didn't feel able to respond. I was too frightened um, to answer and to go into it. I don't know why. Um, 
I was maybe testing her, maybe just to see if she would give up on me, but she didn't. Mm. And eventually I did answer and things seemed to go back to normal and I apologised, just said I'd been busy for so many months. But maybe I felt more confident with her after that because I thought maybe she won't leave again. She's here. That's interesting that you, you, it doesn't sound like she did anything to trigger you to stop answering. You just decided to test her one day and unconsciously it sounds like because I don't get the impression as you speak about it now that you even have thought about it much <laughs> yeah. since then I think I just missed one call and then I missed another one and I thought I can't really I've not got the energy for this tonight and then it just continued like that mm-hmm. and looking back I definitely think that I was thinking I wonder how long it'll be before she gives up because I knew, I knew that my adoptive mother would never give up on me. You know, she would never just leave me. And maybe I had some idea that if Isabel thought that I wasn't reachable or wasn't interested, that she would give up. But she didn't. I'm glad she didn't. Did you, did you finally reach a point when you did answer the phone where you could feel that she wasn't going to give up and you could... Did you, did you settle into a deeper level of comfort than you had been at first? I did. I think after that, I was able to talk to her in the way that a daughter talks to a mother. We were able to have conversations about day-to-day difficulties in our life, and I felt like I could ask her for advice, and she would listen to me, just listen to me moaning about trivial things. She became more important to me, and I felt like she was able to be there for me, sometimes in ways that my adoptive mum hadn't, just because of her own difficulties. I felt she was strong. And I felt I could lean on her. Wow, that's amazing. That's really yeah. cool. Two years ago, Laura got married. Isabel was among the guests, and one of her sons, Laura's younger brother, walked her down the aisle, and she loved it. Her birth mother is in the wedding photos, and they had a lovely event. But about a year before the wedding, Laura decided she was going to locate her birth father. She went back to the social work department to try to get some more information, but she didn't want to ask Isabel for clues if she didn't have to. I knew that my birth mum probably held a lot of useful information about him, but I was frightened about getting her involved because I thought, if she thinks I want to find my dad, I had this idea that it would make her want to leave me. So I said, can we do the search without involving her first? So we did, but nothing came up. So I said, right, okay, I'm going to have to have this really difficult conversation. So I phoned my birth mum. I told her I want to look for my dad. She was upset. I was upset. We were both crying. And she said, I understand why you want to do it. I think think she just carries a lot of hurt feelings from him. And I tried to understand that. So I said, will you help me? And she said, yes. Isabel shared information with the social worker to aid their search. Laura had his name, a physical description of the man, and the names and locations of places he had worked. But no results came from their search. She got an idea to make a Facebook video to try to appeal to her local community, including Sterling, where she grew up, to see if anybody had information about this guy. On Father's Day, 2018, at the peak of frustration with her difficult search, juxtaposed against her effortless search for Isabel, she recorded an unscripted video appeal. In the video, Laura outlined the situation around her birth, described her birth father, and she asked for information about him from anyone with local knowledge. The next morning, Laura had three Facebook messages from people she didn't know. 
So I opened them and I read them, and it was from three women who knew my dad. Wow. I think one was from school, maybe one was from his work, and maybe one was just from the local area. So I felt, for a moment, I felt absolutely elated. And then immediately after that, I just felt deflated and I felt broken because all three of them described to me that my father had been dead for 10 years. Oh, no. So that was that. So it just, at that point, it just felt like the train had stopped. When I was looking for him, it was frustrating, but it felt like something was in motion, something was happening, something exciting was coming my way. But when I found out he'd died, it was just the end of a journey. And it was a Monday, so I thought, God, well, my dad's died, but I have to go to work. I thought, can I take time off work for this guy that I don't know who's died? Um <laughs> Do you get bereavement leave 10 years after the death? I've no funeral to arrange, so I thought, I don't know. So I couldn't really face having this conversation with my work that I thought might be really difficult. So I thought, I'm just, I don't, I want, I don't want to go to work. I want to just find out more, but I thought, I'm just going to go and see how I get on. Needless to say, Laura didn't get any work done that day. She spent her time searching obituaries for her birth father. The Facebook acquaintances of the man gave Laura the correct spelling of his last name. It ended with an E, not an I, so she had been searching for the wrong identity the whole time. But with that error corrected, the obituaries were easy to find and shockingly informative. I remember just reading it and then I felt like I jumped out of my own skin because underneath the obituary in the comment section, there was a comment from someone called Lorraine and it said, R.I.P. Dad. So for the first time in my life, that was when I discovered that I had a sister. I knew it was possible my dad had other children, but there was nothing solid before then. So I thought, wow, I've just discovered my sister. Wow, that's incredible. So Hmm. I searched on Facebook and online, but I couldn't find anything. So So before before you go down that that road there, I want you to just tell Mm -hmm. me a little bit more about the grieving period that you had there because this is a guy that you said you know i didn't know this guy he's Mm -hmm. been gone for 10 years but still there's an attachment that you feel to this person because you were obviously biologically and genetically connected to this person yeah how did you tell me about your sort of grieving period what did you what did you feel what did you do um i sought counseling i started going to a counselor and that was it was really helpful for me because it just gave me a space to just to just um just be angry about it and upset and a space where I wasn't judged and no one tried to give me advice or to tell me what to do and equally I felt good because I think I'd been talking to my my husband and my adoptive family about it for so long that I thought maybe they might be a bit sick of it and a bit burdened by it So it felt good just to have a space that was completely mine where I could just talk about what I wanted and talk about it at length. That was helpful for me. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I think I don't think enough people seek out that safe space to talk. And, you know, you end up in your own head and that's not always a, a great safe mental health space. And so seeking some counseling can be really, really helpful. That's a, yeah. that's great that you yeah. did that. So Laura got married in March 2017, but she didn't find her birth father until June of 2018. Just before she found him, in May of 2018, Isabel stopped responding to Laura. 
Calls and texts, cards and letters, all went unanswered. Her youngest brother had ghosted her too. After some prodding, um, I got a reply from my brother. He was very angry, very upset in a way that I'd never known him to be before. He seemed angry at me. I can't, I can't remember what about, but he gave me a lot of snash in the way that teenagers can, um, and then he blocked me. So He blocked you? Yeah, he blocked my number so mm. I couldn't contact him. Oh boy. And then and then my mum had bought my birth mum had blocked me as well. Uh at the time I thought it was temporary. So I thought I've just got to ride it out and I thought I'll let her stew. She's in a huff, she'll come out of it. Mm-hmm. So it, it didn't seem like a big deal at the time. Laura thinks it's likely that her birth mother saw a Facebook video and the things she was posting online about her search and it was too much for her. Back on her birth father, she learned that his brother, her uncle, still lived in her paternal grandparents' home. She had located her birth father's grave, so that same Monday that she found his obituary online, she went to visit his final resting place, where he's buried with his parents, her grandparents. She had also written a letter to her uncle, which she slipped through the letter slot in his front door. I really wanted to knock on the door, but I thought that might be too much. That's really fascinating. I can only imagine how he felt on the other side to have received that because it would not have had postage on it. It would have been just, it would have been clear that it was hand-delivered, likely by you. Laura waited all week for a response, which came that Thursday. On her phone was a number with an area code in Sterling, where her uncle lived. So I answered it, and it was my, my auntie who I'd also found out about. And she was just so nice to me, so nice. She said, hello, Laura, it's, thanks for your letter. It's so nice to hear from you. And she didn't mean these words in any bad way, and there was no badness contained in them, but she said, we didn't know anything about you. And, and that's not their fault. I thought they might have known. I thought he might have told them. So it was a big shock to see, to find out that my dad had kept me a secret. Mm-hmm. And it must have been a big shock for them too. Yeah, for sure, especially if he had been deceased for 10 years. Yeah, yeah. So um, the way that things happened after that was that I went a couple of weeks later, I went to meet with my all of them, my auntie, my uncle, my cousins, um, at her house. I decided I decided to keep things quiet. I kept things off social media because my birth mum wasn't speaking to me. And I felt angry and I thought, well, if she's not going to speak to me, she, I don't feel she has an entitlement to know all this stuff that's going on. If she wants to know what's going on, I want her to speak to me and be involved and support me if she can. So the first meeting was, um, that was the time when I seen a photo of my dad for the first time. I didn't immediately see it, but I went home later um, and put pictures of him and me together. And I have his face. I have his whole face. (laughs) Um, I had, I don't know, but when I was born, I had really bright ginger hair. And the first picture of him, he had really deep, deep red, red hair. I describe it as being like Ronald McDonald, really, uh, really? intense. And I remember just, I felt overcome with laughter because I thought, I knew from the descriptions that I'd read that my dad had red or ginger hair, but I didn't expect it to be so in your face as it was. <laughs> and it was, it was handsome. He was in a wedding photo with his first wife and he had a suit on and he looked nice. And then a photo after that that I seen of him was not too long before he died. And he was very thin. 
and I learned that when he died, he had an eating disorder. Um, I think it might have been anorexia. And he died when he was about, maybe about 53, I think. So I found, wow. found a lot out. That's fascinating when you get to see the picture of the person for the first time and, and their their full color, their full features, all of them is represented in a photo for you to see for the first time. It's really amazing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I've got, go ahead. Oh, um, no, yeah, I've, um, I think I've built up, I've managed to build up quite a collection of pictures of them now and I spend a lot of time. I've got this app where you can put photos side by side, and I do that, me and him zooming in, mm-hmm. me and him and my mum, and just different family members and finding more of myself. That's really interesting. Wow, that's cool. I had just a side note. I had the same thing happen to me, and I didn't know that my biological mother was a stark redhead either. So, wow. you know, I'm black. And mm-hmm. my, when I was growing up as a youngster, I used to, you know, wore an afro in the 70s and things like that. And, yeah. and my mom would, once in a while, she would comment about these reddish tints in my hair. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I wear, I don't, I cut my hair super short now, so you could never, ever see it anymore because I wear a bald head. But I remember when I first saw a picture of her with this red hair, my, my mm-hmm. adopted mother's voice came back to me saying, I wonder where you get this, you know, this red hair from. And there she was yeah. with this bright red hair. It was really cute to see. So I can, it yeah. resonates with me that you see this bright red hair for the first time. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> yeah. that's amazing. So how yeah. was it meeting your, your paternal family? Oh, it was, it was really good. I think because I'd grown up so much from the first reunion, I felt much more able to just say what was on my mind and just, be honest and upfront and not be so afraid. It was probably easier because with my dad being dead, he was out of the picture. So he wasn't there either as a barrier or, you know, as the person bringing us together. So I could kind of do it on my own terms. So I remember when I first met them, I just, I was honest and I said, you know, one thing that's been really worrying me is that you might think that I'm back here to get money or to get something from you. Um, and we joked about it and laughed and, you know, they said, no, that's not the case at all. But it's a genuine worry, I think, we have as adoptees that birth families think, why are we back? There must be some reason. We must want something from them, something something sinister maybe. But it was a good meeting. Since the first meeting, I would start going through every other weekend. And my birthday was in the September and I went to see them, I think, maybe on my birthday or the day after. And uh, they had a birthday cake for me. Oh, that's so cool. It, it was. It was It was really cool. It made me think, wow, I don't have any shared history with these people, but they care about me and they want to have me. And they do things to make me feel valued. That meant a lot. Yeah, it really does. And you've come back as a representative of, you know, their deceased, which is really cool. Laura expected that her sister would be younger than herself, but she's older because she's from her birth father's first marriage. Laura's paternal sister lives in Manchester, England, so it was a little harder to meet up with her for the first time, but they did in April 2019. I was very worried about contacting her at first because I thought that she might feel some anger towards me. I had no idea what her relationship had been like with my dad, and so I thought maybe she might feel threatened by me or 
might feel anger towards me as someone who's coming to intrude. So I waited a good few weeks and I, I worried about it for a few weeks straight about what to do and how to contact her and whether I should contact her. But my auntie and uncle and cousin, they didn't say too much about it. I don't think they wanted to get in the way. So it got to the point where I thought, right, I just need to write her a letter. Um, that's always seemed to be the best way. It gives people time to process things mm-hmm. and respond in their own time. So I put together a letter. I tried not to put to- too much in it. I said, I don't want to burden you with all my emotions about things, but I'm here. And if you want me, I'm here. So there you go. Um, and she came back to me quite quickly by text and I discovered I've learned so much from her. I've learned that relationships with siblings, they don't have that same tension that they do with parents. She was so welcoming and easy with me. She said, I've always wanted a sister. I'm so glad you're here. And things things have been easy. And I always feel suspicious and worried that suddenly things are going to take a bad turn. Um, but they seem to be fine. Laura took a day trip to Manchester. She could have tried to stay for a few days, but she didn't want to put an undue burden on their relationship too early, creating pressure to entertain her or maintain interesting conversation when things could be emotionally difficult. The sisters met at Victoria train station in Manchester. And I remember her just walking up to me and I'd seen pictures of her, so I knew what she looked like. But the two of us were just laughing. And I think it was just at the it just seemed like such a ridiculous situation. Um, so nice to meet each other, but so ridiculous that we'd had all this time apart. Yeah. Um, so ridiculous to meet your sister as an adult and have to introduce yourself and tell each other about your lives. Right. But it was it was really lovely. We had a really lovely meeting. That's really cool. That's yeah. great that she was so welcoming. And I I always love to hear when someone says that their sibling always wanted a sibling of their yeah. Kid. So that's really cool that she always wanted a sister. That's awesome. My curiosity turned to how Laura's adoptive parents handled the whole situation. She described her adoptive father as kind of on the sidelines, not really knowing how to be involved. But I don't think he really knew how to be involved. So whereas my adoptive mum was with me all the way, supportive. I mean, I chose to meet my birth mum on my own, and I'm glad I did. I wanted that to be my moment because I love my adoptive mum and she's a great person, but she can be very loud and she can over take over situations without meaning to and without realising it. So I needed my first meeting just to be mine. Mm -hmm. Um, But she was with me at all the social work meetings, encouraging me. She's been really very good. And I needed her support as a 17-year-old. I was still, I know legally I was an adult, but in my mind I was still a child and I didn't know much about the world, so I needed her beside me, and she was. So she was very good. With my dad, I think... She's she's supportive, but there's just not that same interest there. There's not that same strong curiosity about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think because I'm a grown-up now and because I'm married, I've got my husband and I speak to him much more about it, which is which is fine. And it's been a totally different journey finding, finding a grave and not finding a person. So I've been able to seek out more professional help on yeah. my own. Well, that's yeah. good. That's good to hear. Yeah. Yeah, the the journey, you know, you you go down the road and you just don't know what kind of twists and turns are ahead of you and dead ends. Yeah. And it's it's got to be really sad to try to find this person and then learn that they've been gone for a very long time. Yeah, uh. yeah. 
did you, I'm curious, did you, when you learned about the fact that he had been gone for 10 years, did you go back in time and try to think, where was I at that time? Oh, yeah, I still do. I do that so often. Um, I, I've got a rough idea where I might have been, what I was doing. He died in April 2009, and I'm thinking I would have been at university. I would have been aged 18. I would have been not long into reunion with my mother when he was in hospital dying. And I think, what was I, I do? I think, what was he doing when he took his last breath? Where was I? What was I thinking? How was I feeling? Should I have known somehow? Should something have told me that I, sh- I should have known? And I think about I think about his funeral and that there would have been funeral cars driving around and I'm just getting on with my life. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of hard when you think about someone else's passing and when you weren't there. Like, what was I doing and how come I wasn't tuned into the universe to, to know yeah. that this was happening, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a little bit of an, an, uh, a guilt trip that you put on yourself for not yeah. having been conscious of this thing that was happening around you there is there is yeah but in some small way in some very small way i do feel glad because i think if i had searched from at that age and at that time it would have sent my education off course i don't think i could have focused and i don't think i could have taken on that grief with the same strength and same ability to find support that i have now yeah that's a good point that's a good point yeah. because you would have met him at a time of sickness and yeah. in potentially facing his demise, you know, that's, you're, you're right about that. There's no way to change it. And it may be good that it, um, good is not the right word. It might I be fortunate it that, it, that it's, that it yeah. happened the way that it did. Yeah. Cause I still know he's gone and I've still gotten to memorialize him in my own way, but I'm glad it's happened when I've been older and more mature and more aware of the support that's around me and the support that I can create for myself. That's great. Well, Laura, thank you so much for taking time to share your story. It's been fascinating to hear sort of some of the parallels, obviously, with my own story, where, you know, you see this picture of this person for the first time, and when you get to see yourself next to them, you're like, wow, look at us. We (laughs) do look alike. It's mind-blowing. Yeah, but I also appreciate what you said about sort of setting boundaries, too, because I think that's really an important thing that people miss. We're diving into this reunion and you want to just keep scooping in information and drinking from this fire hose as fast as you can. But you don't think to yourself, like, what kind of person am I? Am I the type of person that needs to, like, sit and process stuff? And should I tell this other person that I'm meeting for the first time, hey, I need, I'm going to need time. So I I like that you said that because I think that'll be beneficial to others. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate your time as well. Oh, thanks so much. All right, Laura, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Recover from those races. Get some rest, okay? I will do. I will do. Thanks, Damon. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, it's me. I thought the role social media played in Laura's journey was interesting. Facebook was both instrumental in finding answers about her birth father and damaging in creating separation between her and her birth mother. I think one lesson learned about going into reunion is you need to communicate to set boundaries if you can. If you feel that you're going to need time, you should say that, but if you feel like you're wide open, you should say that too. Still, no matter how much you prepare yourself, there will always be emotional ups and downs, 
twists and turns that you could never have prepared for. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you'll find something in Laura's journey that inspires you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I, really? And hey, I've had a lot of people reach out to support the show. I want to thank you guys. Many people have done so on patreon.com slash WAI really. But a lot of folks have basically said, come on, man, do I have to join another platform? No, you don't. If you've already got PayPal or Venmo accounts, you can support the show there too. You can find me at paypal.me slash Damon Davis or on Venmo at Damon L. Davis. And another thing, I hope you'll leave a rating wherever you get your podcasts. I try to read as many as I can because they inspire me to keep going. And as you know, those ratings can help others to find the podcast too. Thanks for listening. If you're interested, you can find Who Am I Really? An Adoptee Memoir on Amazon.com. And like I always say, I hope you'll find something in my story that inspires you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I, really?